It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. And if you do listen to Times Radio, tell your friends. It's quite good. So, you know, drop your friends a text or a note or something. It'd be nice. Right, coming up on today's episode, it's our latest Times Radio focus group. We ask a panel of swing voters what they think of the big political issues of the day, with a particular focus this month on immigration as those new figures show a big rise in net migration. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, on a Thursday, it's time for Manveen and someone. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And we say hello to Stories of Our Times host, Manveen Rana. Hi, Manveen. Hello. And I'm very excited about this. Today's Matthew, because we have a different Matthew every week, is Matthew Bell, now travel writer at the Sunday Times, but more importantly, a former colleague of mine from The Independent on Sunday. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Matt. Very good to see you again. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's been a long time, isn't it? Um, Sadly, The Independent on Sunday no longer with us. Do you think it's because they couldn't cope without us? Well, I mean, clearly not. Were Um, you still there at the bit? I can't remember. Were you still there at the end? I, I left the Titanic a, a few months before it sank. You see, they couldn't um, cope. They couldn't cope without us. No. Uh, well, here we are. We are where we are. We are it is what it is. Um, it is. It's lovely to have you here. It's very nice. Well, thank you. I'm honoured to be the token Matthew. So, <laughs> <laughs> you are t- you are the token bloke, uh, which is well, very important. Holding Rolodex of Matthews, I'm sure. Uh, honestly, <laughs> it's harder to find Matthews than you'd think. Sometimes I'm not suggesting that's an indi- indicative of your your booking, but it's nice. <laughs> it's nice that you're here. Right, um, let's talk about um, uh, immigration. Uh, the net migration figures out today show that last year, 606,000 more people came to the UK than left. That's up from uh, about 504,000 uh, in the year to June, so still going up. Yep. Uh, interestingly, in the polling, uh, Ipsos Mori found uh, Labour ahead on the issue of immigration. For 38% trust Labour to have the right policies on immigration and asylum seekers. 37% trust them to handle the issues of small boats. Just 29% said the same about the Tories. Um, uh, which was it, it was striking, actually, that Keir Starmer chose to go quite hard on uh, on this issue yesterday at PMQs, which normally you'd expect uh, the Labour Party to have sidestepped it. Anyway, this is Labour's shadow immigration minister, Stephen Kinnock, uh, speaking to Times Radio this morning. 
we're clear that the number, the net number of people coming into the country, on, particularly on skilled worker visas, which have gone up 95% since 2016, that is too high and it needs to come down. But the way to bring it down is not by pulling the rug out from under employers' feet by setting arbitrary numbers. The way to bring that number down is by boosting our own domestic labour market through skills, through workforce planning, through better dialogue between government, business and trade unions. So uh, what do you make of this, um, Manvin, where the, the political debate is on uh, immigration? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Um, the polling in particular is really interesting because, you know, both parties will be looking at that when they're trying to work out mm. just how hard their policies are. And, you know, the polling is actually very mixed. Um you know, the, there was more confidence in Labour than the Tories. But even amongst Tory voters, there was a bit more confidence in the government's policies. But there wasn't necessarily an outright interest in um, going after immigration as the biggest concern. You know, given that we do have gaps in the economy at the moment and the economy is suffering, I think people are quite torn when, they, when they're sort of presented with the arguments. Um, and I think it's interesting that Labour is outdoing the Tories in terms of the polling because I don't think many people really know what Labour's policy is on immigration. And I think when you're polling, for example, on the NHS, you know what everybody wants from it. You know, when you're asking about confidence in the NHS, you want an NHS that works. With immigration and small boats, when you're polling, I'm not sure if people want the most effective policy or if actually they're just they don't like what the, con the Conservatives are putting forward. You know, there is a very strong backlash from people like Justin Welby. A lot of people who just feel very uncomfortable about it, who might be saying they prefer Labour's policy because they don't really know what it is. Um, I think I don't. I think there's a, a huge assumption here that everybody wants the most effective policy, whatever that that may be, and the polling just doesn't necessarily show that. I suppose also as well, Matthew, that actually Labour being ahead on some issues is just a reflection of the fact they are ahead. In yeah, the polls, well, and so it, people well, assume, you know, you think, well, well that's what I trust yeah. because I'm going to vote for them. I think, I think what this shows is it's the final nail in the coffin of the of the Conservatives' hope for winning the next election. Because what we've seen since 2019 is this lurch to the far right and um, real centrist Conservatives. You know, the the, the even it's the clues in the name. It's the, the Conservative Party historically was about preserve, preserving, preservation, keeping things ticking over, making small incremental changes. Um, and, and one thing you knew when you were voting Conservative was that you would get low taxes and that they would be pretty tough on immigration. And, if, and those are two things now that we no longer can trust <laughs> Conservatives on. Um, and so in the end, it's not a Conservative Party. It's, it's, become, it's been hijacked by the far right so that centrists are now turning to Labour, which you know, is something you never thought you would, would see 20 years ago. Um, when it was, of course, you know, David Blunkett as Home Secretary, who unfortunately, well, he was a, he was a tough Home Secretary, but it was under the Labour government, New Labour, that the immigration problem started. This this has been going on since I think 1994 um, was the last year that net migration wasn't increasing. So it, it, it's a problem partly of of Labour's making. So there is, uh, you know, to follow on from your item at the top of the show, isn't it ironic? It's ironic, but it, we're going to have to vote Labour if we want to cut immigration. Um, I suppose it, the other risk, I suppose, from the Conservative perspective, is you get they're they're losing support to the to the left to Labour, whether that's because of you know ideology or just you know the question of competence 
while also risking losing them out to the right. So what you know, while we've been talking, you've got Migration Watch UK launching a petition to cut immigration. You've got Nigel Farage saying these figures are a total breach, breach of trust between voters and this government. The population explosion continues. Our quality of life is declining. All the government will do is give us more lives. So there's a re- there's a risk that you know they 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 went to the right by promising to clamp down on immigration down to the tens of thousands, but but then in breaking that promise, they lose to the left on competence and to the right on not who who think you know who complain they haven't done the thing they were they were going to do, Matthew. Because the well, the truth of it is, is, is immigration should never have been made a political um, topic. It's global um, population movement. It's a global problem which every country is facing, and so it, it's a mistake to make promises that you can't then fulfil. And, and I'm afraid that's what both parties have done. It, it, it's it's in one of those unsolvable problems. But I was struck by um, by Pauline Latham, who you interviewed earlier. You know, Conservative, you know, as you said, she's been in. They've been in government for 13 years, and the first. Um, stat she drew so the first thing she mentioned when talking about immigration was illegal immigration but if you actually look at the figures over half of immigrants are students and and this is what we need to address if you really want to get immigration down um, we need to think about how funding for universities work because at the moment universities are reliant on international students coming in who are more than happy to pay £20,000 a year for tuition fees which home students can't possibly afford and so you've got this funding uh gap, if you like, um, which is being propped up by immigration. Uh, yeah, and then, and then we've also got the issue, we've been, the other issue we've talked about is how uh, students aren't getting their degrees marked because their uh, lecturers are on strike because they haven't, aren't being paid enough and then the universities say, well, we haven't got enough money, they'd have even less money if they had fewer international students. What a mess, Manvi. Yeah, you do sort of start to get just a picture of, you know, the infrastructure <laughs> and the economy having all these massive holes in which at the moment are kind of being disguised because of immigration. And the moment you make immigration your aim, uh, you know, all of that becomes much more visible. And also it makes a lot of people think maybe you should be making things like universities policy or, you know, economic growth your aim. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, one of Labour's policies that they announced yesterday um, was about ma- making sure that, you know, there is this shortages list, which is how you, it allows sort of immigration in for certain professions where we feel there's a shortage in this country. And up until uh, they pointed it out, I don't think most people realise that um, it it also allowed employers to pay 20% less to people who were coming in to fill a job than they would to somebody who was here, which just sort of seems bonkers. You know, I mean, A, it's exploitative, but also it's, you know, it's not great for the economy here. If we are trying to sort of uh, provide jobs and make sure we're filling those gaps, uh, we shouldn't have a, we shouldn't have a way where, you know, you can just automatically offer less, less pay to yeah. somebody coming from France. I mean, it's just all these little loopholes that you think have been around for an awfully long time. And it's just really odd that Stuff like this hasn't, you know, if, if immigration is your greatest concern, it's odd that stuff like that hasn't been looked at. So I think there is a real problem in terms of competence for the Conservatives on this. You know, if you declare something to be your primary policy, if this is the thing you, you're saying you want to be tested on, you you really need to make it work. Yeah. Uh, and that just doesn't seem to be happening. Now, Marvin, let's talk about today's episode of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Incredible, this, this is an investigation into how uh, the Times reporter, Emma Yeomans, uh, looked at how... Dozens of groups on Telegram, the messaging app, um, allows fraudsters to freely advertise the stolen bank details of thousands of Britons who are then uh, who even sold access to tutorials on how to become a scammer. Let's take a listen. So I was talking to a guy who offered lessons and I'd asked him about them and I said, how hard is it to learn? And he replied, not hard, one week lessons. I said, is it risky? Do people get caught when they start? 
And he said, haha, nah, bro, if people get caught, then I would be in prison. He was very, very keen to brag, this guy. I played up the ignorant newbie a lot. That was really how we got the information out of them. I mean, it's an amazing story, Matt V. Um, the, the, basically, nobody's details seem to be safe. It is incredible. It turns out, you know, fraud is now the most common crime in this country. Um, most people will have had the experience of getting a text message, which, you know, claims to be from your bank, but it's got the wrong bank. Or, you know, it claims that it's a package delivery that you just need to pay a bit more for. Uh, or something, you know, your your family member has lost their phone. Uh, and all of those are methods of getting your details, which we now find out are available on like public telegram channels. Anyone can join these groups and it sort of will attempt to sell you the details for, uh, you know, 50 people with, with all of their credit card details. And because the, the fraudsters, because it's so common now, they don't have time to be able to exploit each of the details themselves to make money. They're selling tutorials Amazing. to teach people who are buying the details how they can do it, how they can rip you off and get your money. Um, and, you know, we sort of we, we heard from victims who were getting phone calls from people who were trying to or use their credit card details to order on Deliveroo and saying because they knew where they lived, for example, threatening them, sort of saying, we need dinner. We know where you live. Don't don't cancel the payment. Um, and I think that's that's when you sort of realize that this, this isn't a victimless crime. Yeah, yeah. This isn't something that, you know, the, the banks will make up the money that's lost. Um, it's it's horrifying when it happens to you. Well, it's extraordinary stories, and you can read it online uh, right now. And, of course, it's the Stories of Our Times podcast, where you get your podcasts yeah. uh, from. Highly recommended. Highly <laughs> recommended, highly recommended. Uh, now, Matthew, I need to ask you about um, Chelsea Flower Show, because that's been happening this week. You love it. Uh, have you ever been, Matt? I have. I like it. <laughs> what, what do you like about it? Uh, I like the wandering around in the sunshine, uh, drinking pims and looking at nice flowers. Well, you could do that in your own garden. My <laughs> garden's not I mean, as nice. Rather than battle your way through a, a festival of smugness. I mean, it's like A.A. Gill said of that town beyond Thames where the fat dog is. You know, it's, it's a, a cancer of self-satisfied people. Um, it, it's, it's, the trouble with the Chelsea Flower Show is that um, it's got the same problem as the Turner Prize, which every year they're trying to grab the headlines and do something new uh, and, and get press attention. When if you really want to go and see a nice garden, what you do is you get in your car, you drive an hour outside of London, and there are so many beautiful real gardens to be seen where you don't have to uh, battle your way through the crowds to see a beautiful um, hedge or a, a lovely you know, uh, flower bed. Um, and, 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 and for people who live in that part of London, it's, it's the worst week of the year. It's when the nicest bit of London gets ruined by all these people piling in. <laughs> it's the people, I think, that really gets my goat. But, uh, but also, it's the, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there are perfectly good flower shows like at Hampton Court, if you really yeah. want to go, uh, which, which actually have lovely displays and, and you know, new uh, varieties of roses and lupins are, are being showcased. But the Chelsea Flower Show is it's just so pretentious beyond words. <laughs> yeah. Manvin, if you ever been, I have to say I've been watching I haven't been this year. I've been watching on the telly and I'm a bit fed up with the artfully arranged piles of rubble with weeds which we're now supposed to be. I like the ones that look like gardens that you would Matt, go you're, in. you're not understanding the creativity clearly. <laughs> there, I want to go and look at it and think I'd rubble. love to lift this and put this in my garden. <laughs> I don't want to lift well, them. Well, like... well here, here's a tip if you go, go on. on the last day um, yeah. in the last sort of in the afternoon you can buy everything there for, for very little I should, probably shouldn't be telling the world that. Not but, that you get, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the day, if you turn up, 
and I and I I totally agree with Matt on the the madness that goes with it. But I kind I'm kind of a sucker for that. So if you walk down the King's Road at the moment, which I you know I I went out for a walk the other night, and it's just everyone's got these amazing art installations made up of flowers everywhere. So there's like a, an enormous nice. horse, it's and nice. then there's like mermaids. Matthew and... needs to cheer up. Sloane <laughs> Square I... has been converted into like a, the Natural History Museum made up of flowers. There's an enormous dinosaur. That's nice. With something in its mouth. I love it. <laughs> I'm rounding up my godchildren and now, taking them on a tour of, of the King's Road. <laughs> we need to we need we need to move on because George Willoughby's here. He's a journalist in the Times. He's got another story. I suspect this this is the sort of thing that's going to wind Matthew up as well. The things that people always take on their holidays, George. Yes. Give us the list. Somebody's emailed in, uh, messaging saying insulin. I can't go on holiday without insulin. But to be honest, I can't go anywhere without it. We're not talking about insulin. We're talking about weird things that people take on holiday. That's correct, yeah. And the most common thing that British holidaymakers take away with them are tea bags. Like they're uh, creature comforts, which will take away. This was a survey done uh, where people said uh, what they can't go away with. And second place was slippers. But I don't know if that differentiate between sliders as well, because that's kind of like the... Well, that's like a flip-flop, isn't it? Kind of, but I'd say they're similar yeah. to, to a slipper, but wasn't as specific as that. Coffee? Se- 7% of people take their own washing up gloves. I don't believe that. <laughs> but, apart from perverts. <laughs> who's taking a washing up gloves on holiday? Well, clearly some of the British public. Matthew, pa- Matthew Bell, do you take your washing up gloves on holiday? What I do take is little small luxuries because the, the way to travel is to book the cheapest Airbnb you can get, but take with you a silk pillowcase <laughs> and, and, a, and a bolstered candle, you know, and then you immediately turn it into a five-star hotel. You pay 80 quid for the room, but you bring the little luxuries and, and, and it's the same as being in a five-star hotel. Perfect. What about uh, you, Bamford? Uh, I, I don't do any of that. I tend to travel light. Um, but I have sort of travelled out to the country before with a friend who just looked like I had committed some terrible crime when I ordered a coffee on the train and then whipped out his own cafetiere, <gasps> his own coffee beans. <laughs> so he, like, come prepared, got water from, from the, the carriage, was sat there sort of grinding them because you have to have them fresh. Grinding on the his train. own beans on the, on the train. train. I know. So to speak. Uh, and then sort of made this sort of incredibly pompous cup of coffee and stared at me like I was, and literally said I was drinking pig's wool, which is probably true. <laughs> George, did anybody mention taking a cafetiere on a, tra- on a holiday? No cafetiere. There no. was a water filter jug, though, which is uh, quite interesting. But I should say it doesn't really differentiate if this is like a, a staycation or yeah. if it's self-catering. I mean, exactly. If I go camping, I take tea bags. Yeah, that makes sense. Matthew Bell and Manveen Rana that. And of course, you can read the stories we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. And you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. Up next, it's the Focus Group. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It's one of my favourite times of the month. It's time for the Times Radio Focus Group in association with the SSE, powering change for a better world of energy. Times Radio Focus Group with SSE, delivering thousands of green jobs in communities across the country, levelling up our industrial heartlands and accelerating the transition to net zero. Actions, not ambitions, are what's needed now to secure our energy future. SSE, we power change. Find out more at sse.com. Yes, it's that time of the month. But every month here on Times Radio, we convene a focus group, exactly like the ones used by Downing Street, by political parties, by businesses as well, when they want to find out what their customers are thinking. We do it to replicate what happens in political parties, to find out how the government's getting on and see what matters to people outside the Westminster bubble and indeed outside Twitter. Uh, The focus group, as ever, run by James Johnson from JL Partners, enjoys me now. Hi, James. Hello, Matt. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, let's do the uh, our legally obligated explanation of what is a focus group and what is it not. Absolutely. So a focus group is not intended to be uh, a representative of the entire population. It's too few people for that. We only speak to six or seven, eight people, whereas a poll is 2,000, 3,000 uh, intended to be nationally representative. A focus group is about diving underneath the numbers in the polls, finding out how people speak about what they feel, uh, finding out what kind of things are driving their vote how they speak and, and think about the politicians. Uh, as you say, used by uh, political parties a great deal, um, but gives a lot of nuance uh, to a lot of those polling numbers that we see all the time too. So who were the people on the focus group this month and how are they chosen? Did you go out in the streets? Did I handpick them so that they all agreed with me? However much we'd like to send you out onto the streets, Matt, to find our, our focus group participants. Uh, we used an independent market research agency um, and uh, we um, basically sort of have a screener questionnaire that's, that, that means that we can select people. And the, the, the sort of um, the requirements to qualify um, were to be um, someone who voted Conservative or Labour in 2019, so an even mix, um, who are now undecided um, about how they would how they would vote. And we went to three places for this focus group, uh, Rother Valley, Eastbourne and Wakefield, all three key seats ahead of the next general election. And uh, we heard uh, uh, earlier in the week, we, we heard what they had to say about, in fact, it was yesterday, wasn't it, Boris Johnson uh, and his party gate stuff. So we sort of park that now. The big story, the big political issue, of course, of the week is immigration. Uh, we got the figures this morning that net migration is at 606,000 people. More people came uh, than left last year. When you spoke to the group, the predictions were between six or seven, six or 700,000. So, so we were just about right. Uh, so this is what the group thought about the scale of immigration if net migration was somewhere between six and 700,000. 
we're already overpopulated as it is and then that you're hearing a very high number that are coming in like where where are they gonna go and they're gonna be taking our jobs etc I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm human, I I feel sorry for these kinds of people, but it does affect working class people, doesn't it? Because we're having to work longer, our our retirement age has been increased, because we're paying more into the economy, we just need to cap it somewhere. But the government haven't got a grip on immigration, it's just totally out of control. We have Brexit, which means we're supposed to have control of our borders, and yet since Brexit, there are more people coming into the country than there were before Brexit. So it seems counterintuitive, really. And are they economic migrants or are they people coming in with skills that we we want? I think the large majority of these are made up of students and the students wanting to bring in dependents. That's fine if the country can cope with the numbers. And that's the problem. There's not enough housing as it is. And there's tremendous pressure on local schools, on local health services and just general local areas with the amount that's come in. And I think the universities have got a lot to answer for because they're not putting numbers on it. They're just seeing thousands of pounds from students. To put it simply, you can only put so much water in a glass, can't you? And uh, we are an island at the end of the day. And the, the issue that we're going to lose is green belts. They're, they're going to get the houses built on and we're going to lose what we enjoy. It's already, we're struggling as it is. You know, my local doctors is jammed. You know, they can't open enough schools. They can't stop building enough houses. We are being overwhelmed you find that the people that have come from another country, they, they get offered the job first before the actual British get offered the job. Well, there's probably quite a lot to unpack there, James. We'll do that in just a moment. But I, was, I also want to just play this clip. There's a really interesting question that you asked, uh, making the point, the sort of the counter-argument, the pro-immigration argument that's sometimes made, and then the response from one of the group. Some people say the economic impact of immigration overall is a good thing for the UK economy in terms of, you know, the impact on GDP or how do, how do we react to that argument? If that's the case, why are we not seeing economic growth now? If we're recording record levels of migration to the UK, then why are we not seeing record levels of growth? Which I just thought was a really smart question, the sort of question that might be being asked uh, in homes across the country, James. Yeah, I think he sort of summed up there how those sort of macro arguments that might seem uh, persuasive from a, from a think tank uh, uh, don't necessarily register with the public. They look around, they look at their circumstances and say, well, that's not the case, is it? Um, I think that that whole, whole clip there shows us, and as I say, you know, we, we, focus groups are not intended to, you know, capture what the whole uh, of the public think. But I do think it is a reality check. Um, there's been this... Uh, sort of narrative over the last couple of years um, that um, especially amongst uh, some uh, some uh, Twitter academics um, that uh, everybody loves immigration now um, that you know everybody feels it's positive and actually they're completely relaxed at numbers being so high um, that clearly is not the case both when you look into the polling more deeply and when you run focus groups like this and I think that's really important because one of the levels of one of the bits of evidence that people have cited is saying that immigration's importance to voters has come down. But actually, I would have a good bet that a lot of people in that focus group that we spoke to wouldn't necessarily put it as one of their top issues, but they are putting the NHS, they are putting housing, they are putting schools. And for them, those issues are immigration issues, as you heard in the focus group there. So it's one of those reasons why having the focus groups alongside the polling is absolutely crucial because it's certainly a very a very different picture to what you might see if you just looked at the numbers. And when they talk about uh, getting a grip, uh, a lack of grip, a lack of, a lack of 
investment in infrastructure. You know, the 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 the, the concerns about immigration are actually concerns about the sort of the fabric of the nation, the ability to get a school's place, get a house, get a hospital appointment. Um, and actually, you know, I spoke to Pauline Latham, the, the Tory MP, earlier, and she, you know, she was listing all these t- terrible things in the country about why we can't possibly cope with any more people. And I sort of pointed out to her, you have been in government for 13 years. And so the Conservatives, this, this becomes a big problem for the Conservatives because they've both broken the promise to bring down immigration while also not fixing the... The, the the symptoms, if you like, of a of a rising population. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that uh, this is you know this this announcement today with the immigration numbers uh, and immigration as a whole is going to be is going to be a tough a tough situation for the Conservatives. All I would say in in you know in in defence of that point of them talking about it is that when I was at number ten running the polling, one of the things that we saw was that performance on immigration mattered. You know, government performance, but what mattered even more was the government's intention to do something about it. So it's possible that the Conservatives can still win that argument in relation to Labour if they want to and show that they've got a plan to get down. But actually, Matt, the thing is is that some signs from government, perhaps, is that that's not necessarily on the the top of their priorities. Well, let's move on to uh, the person who's actually in charge of all of this. Much in the news uh, this week over speeding fines and speeding awareness courses whatever else, uh, but, you know, also in charge of migration and uh, and is, has been very strident on it. So let's take a listen to what the group had to say about the Home Secretary, Svella Bravman. Controversial, I'd say. <laughs> I think she's trying to make a name for herself. She's followed on from Priti Patel. So where she failed, I think Suella Brahman's probably trying to say that I'm going to do it, so we'll see. She doesn't say anything that has an impact for me to form an opinion on her. I think it's just caught up in controversy at the moment, is it? Mm-hmm. It's really fine. I've not heard of her. I've heard of her, but I don't really know much about her or what she overly does. She's made too many mistakes as the Home Secretary already, even before the last driving licence issue. She's broke more rules than you can shake a stick at, so no. No, no, no. Keep her far away from government as possible. Every time the news is on, her name's coming up with her being sort of rounded on for something else. So I just constantly see her being attacked by the media. The civil service has always been independent, not for whichever government's in charge. And to try and get civil servants to bend the rules for her, I find that unacceptable. She's expecting people to break the law on her behalf. Well, they seem, apart from one person, they seem to have some, some quite strong views on her. Um, I just wonder, James, I know you weren't working for Theresa May when she was at the Home Office, but she had a pretty decent reputation at the Home Office. Um, clearly some people are you know, being aware of what Priti Patel was like. How how worried, pleased should Sabella Barman be with that? Yeah, I, mean, I do think there is a pattern here where perhaps back then when Theresa May was Home Secretary, lots of people might not have actually known who she was. Um, I think since the pandemic, there's a lot more sort of attention being given, I think, by by the public and, and Brexit as well. Uh, look, I think uh, clearly it's one of those interesting nuances, right, is that although we've just heard on immigration, they probably actually share Suella Braverman's view. Um, actually, their general sort of sense is that there's a bit of chaos, there's a bit of you know um, confusion, and and you know the rule breaking and so on, sort of slightly uh, uh, dampens her brand. But I think it is worth saying that as with any non-PM cabinet member, actually that's not really informing their views of how they vote. Um, the big thing that matters is their view of the two main leaders. So if I was Suella Bradman, I wouldn't be too distraught at this. If you listen back to our, our focus groups from a couple of years ago. Some of the Matt Hancock clips, 
uh, <laughs> and certainly some of the Boris Johnson clips, uh, then I'd be a lot, I, I think I'd, I'd feel a bit more comfortable. Lisa says, I love the focus group. Can we have more? Uh, Peter in Oxford says, the demographic of the focus group generally seems to be people who do not read or listen widely to anything regarding politics and therefore make ill-informed comment based on tabloid headlines. Uh, and then just going all out, no mucking about, uh, Martin says, where do you get these so-called focus groups from? Breathtakingly ignorant. I wonder whether they were hand-picked by Rupert Murdoch. As we've expected, well, I don't think he's doing the market research. Uh, they are independently selected as normal people who actually have quite sophisticated uh, understandings of uh, what's going on in politics. They just don't follow every every twist and turn necessarily. James Johnson is still here, at number ten, former number ten pollster, now from Jail Partners. Um, James, let's get stuck into the politics now uh, and find out what the group think about. Uh, their, the, the government more more generally. This is what happened when you asked them, how's the government doing? A lot of the government are aiming towards those of the higher classes um, and not looking at the concerns around working class people. I feel like a lot of the news is dominated with war over in Ukraine at the moment, so it seems like there's quite a lot of support put forward towards those guys over there, which I'm all for. And we kind of need to concentrate on what's going on over here. I think they're a bit lost. They're too busy fighting amongst themselves to sort anything out. I think they're doing a terrible job, <laughs> mainly because of the cost of living. Beforehand, they were happy to give themselves pay rises. And then when people were striking or people aren't happy with what their pay is, they just don't really do much about it. Yeah, I think they've lost their way since they got rid of uh, Boris Johnson. They've dug such a deep hole that it just feels like we're kind of on our knees a bit compared to other countries, that we haven't really, we have to do a really big change in order to make people kind of back them and believe in them again, really. I feel that they've had a bit of a rough deal since, you know, Brexit, COVID, and then the cost of living. A lot of the time, their hands are tied. I think the problems are of, the, are of their own making, largely. Brexit wasn't done. It's still not done. COVID, I'm sorry, Boris did a garbage job. He parted while people were dying. So, no, I don't think they have done a good job. And I think they're going to have to get their act together in the next few months, before the next election, or else they are doomed. <laughs> So, I mean, not a ringing endorsement all round there, James. I mean, we, we ticked off most of the, uh, um, the, the the things that they, they say. Generally, you know, we had Partygate in there, um, uh, COVID, the economy. Um, a, a lack, again, I suppose, sometimes a lack of grip. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, fair to say that you can pick up a flavour from these focus groups. And when we were doing this back in February, March, there was a big... There was a sense of oh maybe they're getting their their sort of uh, their selves together you know with the uh, Windsor framework deal and and small boats planned you could feel in the focus groups people were warming up to the government that now seems to have gone backwards um, and we're back to that sort of sense of they lost their way they're not really sort of uh, you know where they should be um, I thought it was interesting one person saying there you know they've gone off on a tangent there's no sort of sense of a central plan or agenda and that's certainly uh, therefore impacting. Uh, views of the government. One person still used that, what people who listen to our focus groups over the last couple of years will be familiar with, that benefit of the doubt line that we saw yeah, so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, really um, But it's a minority now. And was, that, that, and was then openly challenged by someone else saying, you know, he did a bad job during COVID. And it's interesting how that, that credit has, uh, has long since passed. Well, let's zero in now then on uh, Rishi Sunak. This is what our panel of uh, focus group, uh, some voted Conservative at the last election, some voted Labour. They are in Rother Valley, Eastbourne and Wakefield. This is what they had to say when asked to sum up Rishi Sunak in a sentence. 
I think he's doing okay. Slimy and not in control. Entitled and he's got a hidden agenda at the moment. Smart, but too rich for public opinion. I just don't find him dynamic. I don't think he's a born leader and I don't think he pulls the party together. He's fumbling along in a privileged position. (sighs) Where to begin with that? Smarmy, rich, fumbling along, out of touch, weak. Not great, is it, Matt? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's something about, uh, you know, it shows you how important this sort of, again, going back to the previous comments, a sense of direction. That's what they're really looking for. When you ask swing voters what they're looking for in a leader, they sort of want that sort of sense of clout. They sometimes say it's one of the reasons we like Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. You know, they might not have agreed with everything we th- we think, but they had some sense of sort of oomph that allowed them to, uh, to that, that meant that they sort of uh, you know did anything it took to get their views yeah. their views sort of uh, uh, taken forward, and um, they don't currently feel that's the case with Rishi Sunak. Uh, well, Paul's been in touch saying, Matt, I won't be listening to your focus group. I came to the conclusion weeks ago that members are all supplied by Conservative Party central office. Love the rest of the show though. Uh, well, somebody Tory central office needs to have a rethink. I think if that is the case, Paul, given that wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement for Rishi Sunak, maybe Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, will fare better. This is what they had to say about him. I don't think I've ever heard of it. I don't know that politician. Not going to lie. I know he was um, involved a lot in the strikes, weren't he, that took place within the NHS, particularly the ambulances. I think, but he's not memorable. Uh, I'm unsure. <laughs> well, I, n- I know he's the leader of the Labour Party, but. As far as his um, views or politics, I'm not. I'm not 100. I'd swim untrustworthy and tainted by Jimmy Savile. I know he's the leader of the opposition party. For me, I, I'm impartial. I've got no really opinion for him. I describe him as a professional politician. Although I must disagree with the Jimmy Savile comment. I can't can't accept that. I don't think that comment should have ever been made by Boris Johnson. It didn't do him any favours. So, don't know who he is, don't know who he is, something to do with the ambulance strikes, don't know, Labour leader, and then a mention of Jimmy Savile. That's yeah, not great I, I, either. No, not, not great either. And on that don't know, I love, I love that lady's response. I don't know about it, <laughs> um, rather than, uh, rather than yeah, him. him. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, it's interesting because obviously it's that reminder that you know, people are not that engaged in politics. Um, it's those who do have a view of him are pretty negative. Obviously, someone did come to the fence there, uh, but it is worth saying that. And um, you know, I don't want to get into legal trouble on your program, uh, Matt. Um, but uh, you know, clearly that Jimmy Savile sort of uh, story that's out there um, is still out there on social media and does still come up. It's not the first time we've heard it in one of these groups, and it's not the first time I've heard it in focus groups more generally. Yeah, uh, and we should we so- should explain this. Is, this relates to when Keir Starmer was director of public prosecutions. He was in charge of. Uh, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service when it decided not to prosecute Jimmy Savile. He was not involved in that decision uh, but Boris Johnson, was it about a year ago now, threw it out in the House of Commons uh, to say uh, accused him of being of being too busy, I think, prosecuting journalists rather than prosecuting Jimmy Savile. Now, I would also say, and we've talked about it on the show before, uh, Keir Starmer has made lots of claims about what he did when he was director of public prosecutions, which he thought were good, not all of which he was involved in. So there's, there's clearly a tension there. If you're at the top of an organisation, can you take credit for the good stuff and distance yourself from the bad? bad. But it's interesting that, it, you know, we're told that Keir Starmer's on the march number 10. He's going to be prime minister next year. He's well ahead in the polls. And we've ended up with a random group of people who don't know who he is, 
or they've latched onto this thing which Boris Johnson said 12 months ago. He's not he's not defining himself in people's minds. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And nobody could, you know, name any of his five missions. Uh, oh, nobody in fact, saw James, it. In fact, James, let's do oh. this because this is a great this is a great little sequence. But obviously we need to remember that Rishi Sunak's got his five pledges. Keir Starmer's got his five missions. They've been banging on about it for months since the beginning of the year. Let's see how that's got on, uh, lodging in people's minds. Let's first of all ask the group uh, to sum up uh, Rishi Sunak's five pledges. He keeps them pretty much to himself because I've not heard much about them. No, no I haven't heard of his five pledges. <laughs> no, yeah. I've heard of the five pledges, but I can't remember all five of them. I think the NHS was that one of them. Yeah. Uh, definitely stop the boats. Was crime one? More yeah. policemen. I was going to say the economy. Was it to try and help it or something like that? But was one of the pledges something about halving inflation mm -hmm. by the end of the year? I think the fact that we couldn't name all five of them between us, it just shows how well he's doing with them because we can't even name them. I mean, it's a good point. Uh, in the interest of clarity, halving inflation, economy growing, debt falling, waiting lists, cutting NHS waiting lists and uh, stopping the small boats. Uh, that I mean, they sort of. I think they got to most of them by the end. Uh, let's now try uh, Keir Starmer's five missions from a better Britain. No, sorry, I don't know those. I could probably guess <laughs> the economy, cost of living, crime, NHS. No, I think I think they're all about the same missions. It's just it's about time they went a different way about achieving them. So they are secure the highest sustained growth in the G7, make Britain a clean energy superpower, build an NHS fit for the future, make Britain streets safe and break down the barriers to opportunity at every stage. Which I think they weren't even getting those right, James. They were just, just assuming the cliches that you'd expect from politicians. Yeah, and that really speaks to the level of disengagement there is right now. Um, they don't think much of the Conservatives. They don't think much of Labour. Um, if they do sort of fill in the gaps and think the kind of things that Labour would say, they just, again, assume they're the sort of standard things that politicians would always say to get elected. There is no enthusiasm. You know, when you see people talk about this as a 90s moment for the Conservatives, well, certainly it's not a 90s moment for Keir Starmer. There's none of that enthusiasm that there was for Tony Blair. Um, if Labour get into power at the next election, it feels like on the basis of these groups it's going to be th more through a sort of none of the above option uh, than through any real enthusiasm. And, you know, the general faith in politicians is is really at, at rock bottom. And I think you can really feel that comes through in the whole in the whole focus group. Let's see if we can get through the, uh, the last couple of uh, clips we've picked out from this. Uh, you asked the group, <laughs> at least those who'd heard of him, whether they think Keir Starmer is ready to be Prime Minister. No. He reminds me a lot of Tony Blair in the sense that he's trying to do the middle ground. I think the Labour Party should be for working class people, not for the middle ground. I think he thinks he is, but as Graham said, well, he seems to me almost like a Conservative politician wearing a red badge. Yeah, Tony Blair light. I don't think he could probably do any worse than Rishi is at the moment. Um, they're both very similar people. They're not. Neither of them are dynamic. Um. <laughs> Not again, it's not. It's interesting. He says he's like Tony Blair when it actually the, the sort of level of engagement and enthusiasm, probably nothing like we saw in '97. Um, just finally, then, James, you asked them after all of that, who do they think will win the next election? People probably don't know what to do for the best, they're just going to probably tick the box and hope for the best. I don't think there's going to be an easy win. I don't know, after 12 years, maybe people are looking for a change. It could be between Labour and Lib Dem partnership. I think it's going to be very close between Labour and Conservative with 
maybe a lot more voters going for fringe parties as they're fed up with the mainstream parties. People are going to take what happened with Boris Johnson and COVID, the distrust surrounding the Conservative Party, they're going to take it personally. It reflects the Conservative Party at the end of the day. It's unpredictable. You can't tell from one to the other. I don't think Conservatives will get through next time. I think um, we we need more of a working class voice. I think it'll be a hung parliament. I don't think Keir Starmer and Labour are strong enough to get a majority. I think if Labour had a different leader, then that might be a different kettle of fish. But James, it's interesting this. So, so these this is a particular group of people who say that they voted Conservative or Labour at the last election, now undecided. Uh, they account for, uh, the don't knows account for 17% of people who voted Conservative last time and 7% of Labour uh, last time. Overall, 16% of people say they don't know how they would vote at the next election. So there's a substantial chunk of the election. And actually, I think that last exchange probably sums up what you don't get from those headline polls which put Labour 10, 15 points ahead. Yeah, look, I mean, how these split, how these split come on election is going to be absolutely key. Sounds like from that, some of this group might not even end up voting or indeed vote for smaller parties. Um, but uh, yeah, these are these are absolutely key voters, and that's why we keep speaking to them. Um, and you know, you can see that it's a bit like a sort of. I always like to liken focus groups like this to sort of you know the, the old Big Brother live feed. You know, you can see you know over the over the weeks, over the months, you can see the sort of tone shifting along with the polls, depending on how sort of politicians are doing. And at the moment, there's no doubt that the Conservatives have gone slightly backwards, but Labour are flatlining too. I think for both parties, and for anyone sort of into politics, really, I don't think that was the most cheery listen. Yeah, it was pretty grim all round. Uh, um, this is my favourite message we've had, actually, on the uh, the quality and the usefulness of the... Uh, of the, the the focus groups um, that we've had in. Uh, Mark says, I just want to be the first to complain that your focus group this time is the usual right-wing slash communist, well-informed slash ignorant, intelligent slash idiots. I won't be listening again, although I will, to ensure you read my message and to see if you still do the same old rubbish again. Uh, so, uh, thank you for that, Mark. Uh, lovely to speak to you as ever, James. Really, really fascinating. Uh, and a, a, a good corrective, I think, whether it's on immigration or on the political parties, on... Um, on uh, on what everyone thinks is going to happen. Good to speak to you, James. Thanks, Matt. Uh, there we go. That was the Times Radio Focus Group. Times Radio Focus Group with SSE. Transforming the grid for a smarter, greener future today. Actions, not ambitions, are what's needed now to secure our energy future. SSE. We power change. Find out more at sse.com. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch. Email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, is goodbye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. 
I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.